Guten Morgen. Ich bin sehr glücklich, dass Sie alle hier sind. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning is from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. I will be reading in German. The English text is on the screen. Dann sagte Gott zu Noah und seinen Söhnen, Ich schließe einen Bund mit euch und mit allen euren Nachkommen, dazu mit den vielen verschiedenen Tieren, die bei euch in der Arche waren, von den Größten bis zu den Kleinsten. Und das ist mein Gesprächen. Nie wieder werde ich eine so große Flut schicken, um die Erde und alles, was auf ihr lebt, zu vernichten. Weiter sagt er, diesen Bund schließe ich mit euch und allen Bewohnern der Erde immer und ewig, will ich dazu stehen. Der Regenbogen soll ein Zeichen für diese Versprechen sein. Wenn ich Wolken am Himmel aufziehen lasse und der Regenbogen darin erscheint, dann werde ich an meinen Bund denken, den ich mit Mensch und Tier geschlossen habe. Nie wieder eine so große Flut. Nie wieder soll alles Leben auf diese Weise vernichtet werden. Ja, sagte Gott, diese Zusage gilt für alle Zeiten. Der Regenbogen ist das Erinnerungszeichen. Wenn er zu sehen ist, werde ich daran denken. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity City Church. If I don't know you, my name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. It's a joy to be with you. In case you didn't notice, Children's Church is dismissed. Um, if you are just joining us this morning, we are in the middle, so to speak, of a sermon series through the book of Genesis. And uh, Pastor Brian kind of plans out the sermons months in advance and because there's a team of us that preach, different elders here at Trinity, he kind of put a little blurb on each chapter so we would know what that chapter was about. I don't know about you, I just, I don't know what chapter 30 of Genesis is about off the top of my head. So the blurb for this morning, Genesis chapter 9, was naked Noah. And it reminded me of a joke my, uh, my aunt told me once as a kid. One of her favorite comedians had this expression. He said, do you know the difference between being naked and being naked? Naked is when you ain't got any clothes on. Naked is when you ain't got any clothes on and you're up to no good. So, <laughs> naked is actually a good description of what's going on in Genesis chapter 9. We're going to see that as we get there. But before we jump into that, would you join me, with me in prayer? Father, we're so grateful for this morning, this opportunity to be together. Thank you for getting us here safely, despite the really cold weather and the, the rough roads out there. We pray, Lord, as we come to your word, that though we're reading about something that happened a long time ago in the life of Noah, that we would actually see Jesus even in this chapter 9 of Genesis. That we would see Jesus for who he really is, 
the son of Eve, the son of David, the son of God who has come to set us free from sin and to walk with us even in this life through the suffering and pain that we endure. Lord, if you don't give us eyes to see, we won't see you. If you don't give us ears to hear, we won't hear. And if you don't open our hearts, we won't understand. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So like I said, if you're just joining us now, we're in chapter 9 of Genesis. Sometimes it's hard when you get into the weeds of a Bible story of a particular passage. It's hard to remember that the Bible is actually a book and it's a story. And every book of the Bible is a little story inside of that big narrative, right? It's easy to get caught up in the details. And we're going to look at some of the details in chapter 9. But you've got to remember when we're in Genesis, Genesis means the beginning, that in this book, God, through Moses, is laying a foundation for the whole rest of the Bible. So the themes that you're going to encounter in the first chapters of Genesis are going to run straight through to the end of the book. Right? It runs straight through from the beginning of creation to the end of time. The themes that we're going to see in the first chapters of Genesis are going to run right through the whole thing. If you have been here thus far, and we've been going through the first chapters of Genesis, you'll know that the story of the Bible starts out amazing. God creates everything in the first two chapters of the book, but we get to like chapter three before the wheels just completely fall off the bus, right? The story doesn't just like descend, it drops off a cliff. In the opening chapters, we read about how God makes everything. When God creates a new aspect of creation, he calls it good. So we know that there's God, that he creates, and that what he creates is good. At the pinnacle of his creative act, he makes humanity in his image, and he blesses them. He gives them a mission. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's an invitation to join him in the work of creation, to steward creation, and in a sense to take Eden, the garden that he has placed them in, to take Eden everywhere, all over the face of the earth. In chapter 3, we get introduced to this character. He's really mysterious. We don't know a lot about him. Uh, at this point, he's a serpent, and you know what he does. He tempts Adam and Eve to reject God's plan, to reject his commandments over their life, and he deceives them, and they fall for it. They eat the forbidden fruit in the garden, and it opens up Pandora's box in a way, it turns creation on its head. This rejection of God's rule and reign over their life results in sin and death and evil entering the world. And at the end of Genesis 3, God curses, well, he curses lots of things, but he curses the serpent, and there's this tendril of hope that is exposed here at the end of Genesis 3. The hope is that there will one day be a descendant of Eve, the first woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? Adam and Eve sin, and God exiles them from the garden, and the story leaves us with this huge question. Who's going to be the descendant of Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent and reunite God and man? That's where the story leaves us in Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we get introduced to Cain and Abel, the first two children born to Adam and Eve. Right? And you guys know the story of Cain and Abel. What happens with Cain? Well, Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices to God. 
Cain's sacrifice is rejected by God. Abel, his younger brother's sacrifice, is accepted. We won't get into all the details here, but Cain is super jealous, and what does he do? He deceives his brother, lures him out into a quiet place, and he murders his brother out of just cold jealousy. When God confronts Cain and asks him, where is your brother? Cain has the chutzpah to look God in the eye and lie to him. Genesis 4.9 says, I don't know, he replied, Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? It's like a teenager response, right? Well, I don't know. Where, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, maybe you're not your brother's keeper, but how about not being his murderer? Right? These are the very first children born to humanity. Like, it's, got, it's gone really bad really quick. The first child born on earth is also the first murderer. And the second is the first murder victim. Right, so if you're reading through the book of Genesis and you're looking for this descendant of Eve that's going to make everything right, it's not Cain, and it's not Abel. Abel's dead and Cain's a murderer who gets cursed again and is sent to wander even further away from God's presence. Um, We read later in chapter 4 about a descendant of Cain named Lamech. He's kind of famous. And you wonder, like, maybe Lamech's going to be the guy. Maybe he's going to right the wrongs of his ancestor Cain. Nope. Genesis 4, 23 and 24, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. The implication here is like, does Lamech just go around murdering people who like piss him off? Is that, if Cain's a murderer, is Lamech like the first serial killer? Like this is really, really dark. Now, chapter 5 tells us that there's another son born to Adam and Eve named Seth. And chapter 5 is just a genealogy. This guy was a father, this guy fathered, this guy fathered, this guy. And we go through the line of Seth, and we get to one character, and the narrative slows down, and we get several chapters about the life of one guy named Noah. Now, Pastor Brian has covered this in previous sermons, so I won't go into all the details, but you guys know the story. Humanity has become completely corrupted by evil. I think it's fair to say, like, we literally can't imagine what this would be like. You know, if in our world right now, in the society in which we live, if something goes wrong in your life, you have recourse. You can go to a court, you know, there's police, there's somebody to go to. At this time, everybody you would go to, everybody who's in power, is evil. So there's no justice to be found anywhere. Humanity has reached this terrible point where God actually regrets having created them in the first place. It's awful. But there's one guy who is unlike every other person on planet Earth, and that's Noah. If you start reading through uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8, you hear about him. And it really contrasts Noah and everybody else. Noah finds favor with the Lord. That's chapter 6, verse 8. Noah is a righteous man. He's blameless before God. And God tells Noah that he's going to rescue him and his family, and he's going to start over with Noah. I've titled this sermon, Noah and the New Creation, because that's what's going on here. And as we go through the sermon, I want you to pay attention to the details of the story of Noah, right? So again, we're coming to this character with that same question, is this going to be the guy? Is this going to be the guy that's going to be the descendant of Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Is God going to use Noah to get us back to the garden? Now, when God punishes all of humanity, he wipes them out with a flood. 
It's interesting. He could have done it anyway. Why a flood? Well, think about where we are now in Genesis chapter 9. It's been raining for 40 days and 40 nights. Water is over the face of the whole earth. And then we start to get all these echoes, all these pictures going back to Genesis 1 and 2. Right? What happened in Genesis, like verse 1 and 2? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Well, that's where we are now, except Noah's in an ark. Then God separates the land from the water, right? The waters recede and the dry land appears. Noah releases birds into the air, right? And then there's fish in the sea, and then the ark opens up and land animals come out. God is repopulating the earth, not just with humanity, but also with all, every aspect of creation. And what's the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark? Look with me in verses um, 20 and 22 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So Noah's worship, like Abel, is so acceptable to God, it's so pleasing to him that he actually makes a promise that he will never judge humanity the way he just did in the, in the flood. Right, so if we're following along with the storyline, with the Ark of Genesis, everything is looking really good. Like, we're going to get back to Eden. We've got a new creation. We're going to jumpstart the, the cultural mandate, the, the command to go out and repopulate the earth. And it's going to be Noah, right? He's the guy. He's the faithful one. He was the only one on planet Earth that was righteous. And if the story ended right there, like, the Bible could just wrap up, right? But that's not the end of the book. Let's look at Genesis chapter 9 now. We're going to start in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So far, so good. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Pause here. Noah now is worshiping God and repopulating the earth from what? A garden. He began a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. Verse 21, he drank of the vine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. 
Do you feel the weight of it? This was the guy, like, the way the story goes, you think this is going to be the one. Like, we're, we're getting a second chance at Eden, and it goes just as terribly as it did the first time around. We don't get all the details about what's going on in the heart of, Hem, or, uh, of Ham, but we do know that there's some sin going on here. He looks on his father's nakedness, and unlike his brothers, he doesn't cover it. He just, like, goes out to them, like, yeah, dad's, dad's passed out. He's drunk in there. And then his brothers cover his father's nakedness. Again, focus on the details. Noah's in a garden. There's a fruit in the garden. He takes the fruit in the garden. He drinks it. He becomes drunk. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? They realized they were naked. And now here was Noah, taking the fruit of the vine, passed out, naked. When you read naked, think shame. His sin is exposed, and his vulnerability is displayed. This is not the son of Eve we've been waiting for. When Noah sobers up and realizes what has happened, he actually curses his son. What happened after Adam and Eve sinned? There's a series of curses, right? But this time it isn't God cursing them. It's Noah cursing his own son. Like the, It's just falling apart more and more, and the relationships are getting just frayed and destroyed here. God judged all of humanity, but redeemed Noah and his family. He reinstated the blessing to be fruitful and multiply, to take Eden everywhere on planet Earth. He made a new covenant to never again destroy life on planet Earth. And what does Noah do? When faced with the forbidden fruit, he takes it just like his parents Adam and Eve did. Sin and shame are on full display. There's more cursing, and then he dies. It's clear whoever the promised son of Eve is going to be, it's not Noah. Now, if you keep reading through the book of Genesis, we're going to keep, again and again, we're going to be introduced to new characters. And this question is always there. Is this going to be the person? Right? The end of Genesis, we get to Joseph. Faithful Joseph, right? Through Joseph, God saves all of his family. He saves thousands of people from famine. But then Noah, Joseph dies, and after a number of generations in Egypt, the Israelites fall into slavery. God sends them Moses to get them out of slavery. They're so rebellious against God and against Moses' leadership that God has to wait for all of that generation to die before he can take them to the promised land. They get into the promised land and they reject God again. They forget the covenant that they've made with him. Everybody turns immediately to doing what's right in their own eyes. God sends nations to invade them and then they cry out to God for help. He raises up a judge, delivers them, and then, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. We do this over and over and over again. The book of Judges tells you about that. The summary there is it's awful. It gets so bad, they beg God for a king. Could there be one person to unite all these tribes of God's people to protect us from our enemies? God gives them Saul, real winner, that guy. He's rejected by God. Then we get David, King David, a man after God's own heart, right? The guy who killed Goliath, the guy who protected the people from their enemies, who brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem. Surely this has got to be the guy. Nope, not him. He's an adulterer, and then he murders the woman's uh, husband that he committed adultery with to cover it up. His own son rebels against him while he's still alive and tries to kick him off the throne. Not David. And if you know the stories of the kings from the books of Kings and Chronicles, 
There's a couple that are like, okay, but most of those guys are awful. And this goes on again and again, and eventually God has to banish his people again from his presence. They go into exile. They're there for a long time. Eventually, some of the people come back, but it's never the same. They're never a kingdom again, right? They're always under the authority of some other, you know, foreign power. And that's the state of God's people for hundreds of years. It just, like, the story doesn't get any better. There's, there's promises, there are reminders all the time that God is going to redeem his people, and the people are always looking for that redemption, but it never comes. It just becomes so clear that whoever is going to fix the problem, whoever's going to reunite God and man, is none of these characters, because they, they blow it over and over and over again. Now, it's tempting to look at the Israelites and be like, why can't they just get it together, right? Like, if they would just... If they would just keep the law, if they would just remember the covenant, like, everything would be great. Well, the truth is, we're the exact same kind of people, right? I mean, just think, the only if, we all have, like, a script in our head and our heart, maybe multiple, multiple of them at the same time. You know, if only I could find somebody who would love me, my life would be better, you know? If only, if only, if only my kid would get into the right school, then their future would be secure, and then I wouldn't have to worry about it. If only I made enough money, then I could stop striving, and I wouldn't be anxious about my future at all. Here's my favorite. If only the right person got elected to the White House, then all of our problems would be fixed, right? We'd get this country back on the right path. If only St. Paul would fix the potholes and clear the roads, we could actually get where we need to go, right? That's my actual favorite. That's my actual favorite. All my coworkers are like, oh boy, yeah, they've heard it. God bless them. Right? If only, if only, if only, we're always looking for that thing. What's going to be the thing that's going to resolve the tension in our life, right? What's the thing that's going to get us back to God, that's going to actually satisfy us and fulfill our deepest desires? God sent prophets, he sent priests and kings, he raised up judges and leaders to guide his people, but none of them could deliver on the promise. The one who was to crush the head of the serpent couldn't just be a son of Eve. He also had to be a son of David. He also had to be the son of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up. When Jesus was approaching his death, hours before he died, he celebrated Passover with his disciples. And after the meal, they walked out of the room, out of the city of Jerusalem, and where did they go? They go to a garden. Mark 14, verse 35. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Brothers and sisters, my prayers this morning that you will see Jesus in the story of Genesis. Jesus is the true Adam, walking with God in the garden, faithful and righteous, sinless before his Father. Jesus is the true Cain, who instead of taking his brother's life, gives his life for his brothers and sisters. Jesus is the true Abel who offers a better sacrifice and is murdered not for what he did wrong, but for what he did right. 
Jesus is the true Noah, drinking a cup in the garden. But this time, the wine isn't from the vineyard. It's from the winepress of God's wrath. Noah's sin was exposed in his nakedness. Jesus' nakedness was exposed that he might deal with our sin. Jesus is the true Abraham, the father of all who are children of God by faith. Jesus is the true and better Moses who leads his people out of slavery and brings them into the promised land. Jesus is the true David who rules with justice and righteousness, who defends his people from their enemies, whose rule and reign never comes to an end. Jesus is the son of Adam who was exiled from the city of Jerusalem that we might be brought back into God's presence. You see, we all live in that Genesis 3 reality of the already, not yet, because we live on this side of Jesus coming, right? We know that creation is good. We know that evil is real. We know that Christ has freed us from the power of sin and death, but we don't get to escape the consequences of that in our life. The question that was presented to us in Genesis 3 is only answered in the person and work of Jesus. Only through what he does can we be reunited with God. Can we have communion with him, dwelling in his presence? If you're here this morning and you've never really considered Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these types of, as the the answer to all of our deepest questions, I invite you to do that here this morning. Jesus is the only way to get back into relationship with the Father. If you're interested in learning more about this, you can grab me or one of the ushers after the sermon. We'd love to sit and talk with you more about about this, pray with you. But for most of us here this morning, we are Christians. And when I was reflecting on like how to apply the the story to our hearts this morning, I just felt like the Lord really put this on my on my heart, and I hope it's encouraging to you. You know, we live, as I said, in that Genesis 3 tension where we know that Christ has come, we have faith in him, we have forgiveness from our sins. We know that one day, sin and death and evil, all that's going to be burned up and destroyed. But right now, even though we are with God, even though we are with Christ and we have his spirit within us, we still suffer. We suffer all the time. We suffer anxiety, we, we suffer pain of all kinds, we suffer loss, we suffer privation, the lack of what we need. And it's tempting as a Christian when you're in a, a season of intense pain to really doubt two things, I think. You're, you're prone to doubt first that God is actually God, that he has the ability to do something about your situation, and we're also tempted to doubt that he's also good, right? Because if he's all-powerful, he wouldn't let this happen to me, so he must not be good. Or if he's good, then he's not all-powerful because he would change the situation if he could. Does that make sense? And in my heart, I've wrestled with this. I know most of us as Christians, if not all of us, have. What do we do with that? Look again at Mark 14. What does Jesus say to the Father? He calls him Abba. He calls him Daddy. Dad, I know you can change this. Everything is possible. You have the power to change my situation. And it's okay to ask God to take the pain in your life away. Jesus asked the Father to take the cup away from him. It's okay to want to not be in pain. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Right? 
Brothers, if Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. He endured pain, we're going to endure pain. And that does not mean that God is not God, and it does not mean that he is not good, and it does not mean that he does not love us. Amen? Even in the midst of awful things, God is still God. He's still on the throne. He still loves us and wants what's best for us. The hope as a Christian is not that when you come to Christ, you get pulled out of all your suffering, but rather that Jesus enters into your suffering with you and you don't have to walk through it alone. You don't. I had a moment uh, a few years ago where I was really struggling in my, my faith and there was a situation going on and I just had that why question. God, why would you allow this to happen? And I felt like I'd been forsaken. And I heard clear as a bell, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that? Jesus on the cross. If you feel like that, that's not a sinful thing to say because Jesus said that. Do you understand? There's no situation you can be in that Jesus hasn't already been there and walked through it. And by the power of his indwelling spirit, he's with you right now in the middle of it. One of my favorite songwriters put it this way. He just captured this so well. Talking about this whole reality of being a Christian and belonging to the Lord, but still suffering. This is the line from the song. Well, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a Savior who suffers them with me. That's the hope of the gospel for us this morning. Not that in this life we're going to get plucked out of every hard situation or circumstance, but that when we go through those valleys, we are not alone. Never forget, when you face evil in your life, you do it with God, who looked evil in the eye and suffered torture, humiliation, and death, but also rose in victory over sin and death. That same God is with you now, and he indwells every Christian and empowers us to walk through the suffering of this life with grace and obedience. Amen?